Uh, hold on. Let's do let's do a Marin one. Let's do a Marin one. Hey, folks, just want to give you a quick reminder at 9 p.m. Nighthawk Prospect Park. We're going to be doing a screen of the last Boy Scout. Sorry, Damon Waynes and Bruce Willis being shown on 35 millimeter. And afterwards, we're going to record uh, one of our little conversations, one of our uh, powwows, one of our talks about movies 30 years later. You listen to this stuff. Anyway, hope to see you there. Ba-da-da-da. 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 This is 30. You fucked it up. What what was what was that? That's how the song goes. It goes. They're creepy and they're kooky. What? There's like a blip. There's not like blip. It's not a blip, but it's like it's like da 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 da. They're creepy and they're kooky. They're all together spooky. Like organ. It's like somebody going like like that. I think it's it snaps. I realize there there are there are snaps, but there is also organ music in the background. You realize that I was trying to create a tight opener for the first time in the history of this podcast, and and you you now we're now we've devolved into a discussion of nothing as we we do per usual. I think this is what's charming about it, though. You know, yeah, our view our 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 audience numbers would beg to disagree. I don't even, you don't even have access to the audience numbers. True, I don't. I don't. What do we say? Now. Children! Put down that antenna. <laughs> I'm blinded by such beauty. How can I compete? You're twice the woman I am. Look, a new chapter. <laughs> Don't torture yourself, Gomez. That's my job. Welcome to 30 Years Later. I am your host, Ricky Camilleri, uh, and I'm joined right now by uh, my co-host, Chris Chafin. <laughs> Hello. Hello. Thank you very much for that kind introduction, Ricky. Not my, not my co-host, the co-host, the other host. Um, I, 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 to, I, know where, I know where I stand. Don't worry about it. I don't know what I was trying to start there, but he didn't really pick it up, and it made me actually feel bad about it. Uh, this week, we're talking about Barry Sonnenfeld's directorial debut, the Adams Family, that came out November twenty second, nineteen ninety one, had a budget of thirty million dollars, and it was a smash success. Uh, it made almost two hundred million dollars at the box office, to which the studio was not expecting. The studio hated it. We'll get into that in a minute. It was produced by Scott Rudin, who brought Barry Sonnenfeld on to direct the movie, and it starred Raul Julia, Angelica Houston, and Christopher Lloyd, as well as Dan Hedaya. And Christina Ricci in, I think, her first part, or at the very least, her first like well well known part. Um, I hadn't seen this movie probably since I was a little kid. I had actually seen Adam's Family Values recently because a couple years ago I had to interview Barry Sonnenfeld, and 
I, for whatever reason, decided to watch Adam's Family Values beforehand. And I'll get into my take on these films in a second, but what was your feeling as an adult watching Adam's Family? You know, you're like 48 years old. (laughs) Yes, I'm like 52 (laughs) years old. Yeah. Uh, which is gives me a real perspective on life, Ricky, you know, because like I've been around the block and I get it, you know. Um, what did I think about Adam's Family? Well, I think it's funny you mentioned Adam's Family Values because I think that movie has sort of entered the like lexicon as like mm-hmm. a good movie, like a movie from the 90s that is like really good and like remarkable. And so I was excited to watch this movie based on on that. But this movie is not the same as Adam's Family Values. It is way, I mean, it's a fun movie in its own way, but it's definitely way worse than Adam's Family Values. It's kind of a nut job movie with a lot of just like hijinks and running around and screaming and like it has some great one-liners, but okay. Mostly what I'm saying is I mixed up Adam's Family Values with this movie when I was thinking about it. When to watch this movie again, I was like, it struck me that it's the kind of, not all of it, but a lot of it is the kind of kids movie that's like almost a bunch of sketches that are stapled together. I I like that about it. I think what with Adam's Family Values, uh, they leaned into Christina Ricci a little bit more, recognizing that she was like kind of a powerhouse kid star, and that her character, the character of Wednesday Adams, was um, it's just really funny to watch a little girl behave that way, and it became I think iconic for young girls, for like little girls yeah. who saw that growing up, probably also gay men who were young when they saw it growing up. Um, but this movie, yeah, it feels like a string of a bunch of sketches strung together, but I kind of like that aspect of it. I sort of appreciate this period of time where like $30 million could be thrown to someone who's like, it's okay if the whole narrative isn't there, as long as we have like a few really good scenes because there are, yes, the movie definitely feels like that a hundred percent. Yeah. It's got like, I, I think probably a solid like four sequences in it that are pretty, that are that vary from solid to really great. And then it's got maybe like a number of one-liners that are fun, which was like enough to carry me. And then there's also just the idea of watching. I know we hesitate sometimes to really lean into the title of our podcast, (laughs) but watching a kid's movie that's budgeted. I mean, it's not necessarily a kid's movie, but like a, a family movie that's budgeted at $30 million that's shot on film that has this beautiful production design and this very innovative, creative camera work that's going on throughout yeah. it. And jokes for adults that don't feel winky. I think when I like oftentimes when you hear someone say about a movie, Oh, that, you know, the kids will love it. And there's stuff for adults too. You watch it and all the stuff that's for adults is like the the character is sort of like winking at the camera and kind of being sort of like, isn't it weird that we always do this in kids' movies, right? Wink, wink. <laughs> and this didn't, like the, the adult humor in this just feels kind of mixed in with a zany child child's film tone, if that makes sense. Like you have nonstop sex jokes between right. Well, that's what I was going to say. This is one of the most adult, like the adult things about the movie is... Um, these sex jokes and double entendres between uh, Raul Julia and Angelica Houston. But the thing is they have some of the most intense sexual chemistry I've seen on screen in like any movie in a long time. They really seem to genuinely want to fuck. Like they seem really, really into each other. Well, that Um, was apparently Sonnenfeld's major direction to them for, for the parts was that, 
these characters want to fuck in every moment that they're together. <laughs> and it's honestly, it's kind of beautiful to watch. Like as someone who is a parent, I was like, it's great that they can still have this after having these couple of kids and, you know, like that they still have this passion for each other. Um, I, I really liked that about the movie and it does make some of the things that should be like lame uh, kids movie jokes, like feel kind of subversive because they do genuinely seem like they are going to fuck like one second after the camera moves away. Yeah. I also really enjoyed, I, they're kind of, I wouldn't even say that they're sitcom jokes because I've seen sitcoms that I've seen recently and maybe it's just recent sitcoms. I don't even hear jokes in them anymore. I hear kind of like someone says something and then there's a pause and then the audience laughs. And I'm kind of like, what are we laughing at now? Well, it's the kind of humor that was like, people always talk about, about like the new Spider-Man movie or whatever that it's like, or the new star Wars movies where it's like, uh, what (laughs) they fly now? Like that kind of Uh, humor. I, I can't even, for some reason, adults have gravitated towards that as well as kids, and they all kind of like that humor. The Adams family does a very good job of not having anything like that. Yeah. Like every character is existing within the world of the movie and never stepping outside of it to suddenly comment on it or make a and joke that feels like it doesn't, it's not in the world. It's so in the world, actually, sometimes that you find yourself as the audience, like it's almost like too deep in the world because you're like, are these characters genuinely murdering people and are they cannibals? Because everything they say would lead you to believe that, but it's like presented as a joke, but it's so deep in their character. You're like, I don't know. Maybe they are cannibals. I don't know. <laughs> like, you know, right. The jokes are like, they tasted great or something like that, but they're yeah. not like they're like, they don't say that. And then somebody else is like, I'm sorry. What did you say? Yeah. You said what? You ate it. Wait, so you, so you ate a guy. You're saying you Um, ate it. Is is that what you're saying? um, um, uh, Excuse me. Where's the exit? I, um, uh, (laughs) ha ha. Like, no, there's none of that shit. Uh, Which I I appreciated that because I just don't think that that would, that would happen in a movie, in a, you know, quote unquote property like this anymore. There wouldn't be this, this sense of investment in building that world. Like, yes, there are people in this movie who don't like the Adams family or think they're weird, but they're not overly commenting it uh, on it all the time. It's really interesting, this movie, because it is from before even the Brady Bunch movie. And I think from before the Beverly Hillbillies movie, because I think that was after the Brady Bunch movie. Um, that said, the Brady Bunch movie has an, has an out. And by that, I mean, it's taking the family from the 70s and moving them into the 90s. Well, this right? is what I thought was so, interesting too, not to interrupt, but just okay. that, that happens in the movie, but it doesn't happen until the last 25 minutes of the movie and then it's over with. But like the Adams family get kicked out of their mansion and have to live in the real world, you know, and he's watching Sally, Jesse, Raphael and that kind of thing. But they're already in the real world at the beginning of the movie. There are shots of them driving the, the hearse you know, the convertible hearse down the Los Angeles freeway. Right, okay, right? that's like, true, yeah. They're already in the real world. They just sort of exist in this cloistered off house and property, but they, they're they they're already in this contemporary world, except uh, what I like about it is it doesn't feel like they have just solely been picked up from like the 40s or the 50s or something and dropped here. They actually, like they have their own world that exists within the world, within the real world, which is, I think- harder and 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 more interesting to pull off for jokes because you can't you don't have you can't just rely on people consistently being fish out of water 
Right, right. Because the idea is they're updating it in this very interesting way, like you're saying, where they're it's a, it's just as if the Adams family existed as they existed in at that time, but in in this time. Well, they are the Texas Chainsaw family, right? Like, what if like the Texas Chainsaw family? They live in whatever contemporary time that takes place. They just happen to be living alone right, on, right, like a, right. on like a on like a in this a compound ranch, in this or whatever, house in right, this compound, yeah. right? So they're like sequestered off from the rest of the world but they do live in the world it's like dog tooth or something like yes they have made their own universe with their own rules inside of their little house that they live in i was gonna i was gonna say i what i do like is how the majority of this the humor from this film and the tone comes from this simple juxtaposition of the family is incredibly happy and well-adjusted and sweet but loves the macabre and death and violence and jokes about death and violence. Yet everybody is like the happiest family you could possibly imagine. Like I truly love that aspect of this movie that everyone looks like they're having fun. Everyone's happy, but they're always talking about killing each other or killing other things and things dying. It's so obvious, but I don't think, I just don't think a a move, a movie nowadays would trust just that to work yeah it is because there's like so full of life and there is some moments like because the plot of the movie you know which we haven't really gotten into but like one of the threads is that um gomez adams and fester have been separated for decades because they had a fight and now they're back together right um and there are the scenes between the two of them you know talking about being brothers and love and how important family is and like looking into each other's eyes like that was getting me more than like any Fast and the Furious movie has made me feel like the importance of family. Um, well, because you have a brother that you're estranged from. I do have a brother that I'm estranged from. Yeah. So watching Fett go and... Do into it? Yeah. Well, I guess... Um, did you already sort of briefly go over what the well, plot is? Does it no, fucking I, matter? I mean, I can do it real quick. It's like the Adams family lives in the real world. They have these this swindling lawyer that they are paying in gold doubloons. And he gets the idea to rob them of the gold doubloons. And then because he owes money to this loan shark who's an old lady, whose son they decide to pretend is the long lost brother of Gomez Fester Adams, except that it's Christopher Lloyd in this giant fat suit with these huge sunken eyes. And he obviously looks like he belongs in the Adams family. Like he has this sort of really crazy, like hair on when they first show him, what's his name? Like Walt Gordon or Walter or something. Oh, I don't remember, but something like that Gordon or something, you know, and he's wearing like a shirt from the (laughs) nineties, but he's got the face of Fester Adams. It's actually pretty funny. So then he's pretending to be part of the family and there's a bunch of like crazy stuff that happens in the house, but then he kind of decides that he, he does want to be part of the family, but then he's getting pushed and pulled. And at a certain point, Adam's family is kicked out of the house and, at the end, you know, everything works out fine. And it it was, they do explicitly say he was really the real Fester. And he just had amnesia from the Bermuda Triangle. <laughs> and I will say the, the plot of this movie is very thin and you kind of know exactly what's going to happen. But there are all these kind of great sequences in the middle of it right, that right. almost have no reason to be there. Like the I, school play. 
the school the school play. play. But I kind of enjoyed that. I love that. I love that. I love the scene. The way that whole school play thing was done is great. It's best you're supposed to be helping uh, Wednesday and Pugsley get ready for a uh, school play where everybody else is doing like dumb school play stuff, but they're doing a Shakespeare scene and fencing with real swords, and then they're like cutting each other's arms off, and blood is spraying all over the crowd. But like, I think a, people, like a lot of blood, which is it's really played great. I thought, as 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 stupid as the majority of audiences mo- usually are, I still think they're almost like too um, habituated at this point to like uh, learned storytelling. Yes, and yeah. and like you know the the beats the necessary nece- quote necessary beats of a story and how a story is told because. I sort of liked that this was like an incredibly successful movie with a plot that was like as thin as string, yeah. but with a but with like a few really great funny scenes throughout throughout and like a vibe and just like a vibe that was like yeah. a fun movie and good one liners. You know? Like it's the kind of movie yes. that seems like it was punched up by someone, but it was like very well used. You know, like I could see a shitty audience now being like, "Where is this story going?" what's happening here, you know, because they're so habituated to like there, there needs to be a a backstory and the trauma and the Mm -hmm. thing that the character has to overcome, you know? Yeah. A goal. Exactly. Like all of these horrific screenwriting principles that are just ruining movies. And like, why do you care about it as the audience? Does that really make you enjoy the movie more? Are you having a better time watching something like this rather than something like the Adams family, which is like, like you're saying random thin plots, but it's like fun to watch, you know, has a great vibe. I will say too, like just articulate it. Like, I don't think the audience members that I'm imagining would themselves say, What's the goal of the main character? What is, you know, uh, what are they trying to overcome? Like, I don't think they would necessarily articulate the storytelling practices that have just become um, like the must do's in mainstream storytelling. But I think they would sort of instinctually feel it and wonder because well, there's a mo- there's a moment about maybe in it. I mean, the movie's only like ninety minutes, so around like forty five minutes an hour into the movie, you're kind of like what's happening you know yes because they set up the thing in the first like five minutes this whole thing they want to get the doubloons and blah blah but then it's like the hand (laughs) but then the hand gets a job in the mail room and you're like okay fine the hand is making a pyramid of fedex boxes yeah like i don't care what the plot of this is this is fun like who cares it's like we were talking about that movie I, i think a few weeks ago you haven't seen it but i was talking about that movie freaky was Vince oh, yeah, Vaughn, yeah, yeah. that horror comedy. And what sucked about that movie was its adherence to all of these storytelling principles. Just give me set pieces. Just give me like the thinnest plot possible for set pieces. I watched Friday the, Friday the 13th Part 6, six last night. Right? <laughs> Again? <laughs> who, yeah. Who, who, who cares that, about the story? It's just, this, it's just a, recept, uh, a, ves- a vessel for uh, kills. And it's got yeah, great right. kills and that's it. Right, this movie, it's like you're watching the Adams Family movie. Like, it isn't what you want to see, like a hunchback and Siamese twins at a ball doing the waltz, you know? Like, isn't that the kind of thing you're signing up for? Like, did you see this? Someone, there was some, uh, someone on Twitter. I haven't seen Licorice Pizza yet, but um, I'm trying to see. I heard you missed a screening to Licorice Pizza. Is that true? I can't even talk about it. (laughs) 
this is a this is a, a film critic. I won't say his name. It goes to every screening, and this is what he said about Licorice Pizza. Again, a movie that I haven't seen, but I just don't agree with this statement on the face on the face of it. Licorice Pizza is a piping hot mess. This is what happens when a director says, "I'm going to make whatever the hell movie I want with zero fucks." An insufferably zany scattershot film that will easily be my single biggest disappointment of 2021. PTA, you're too talented for this. This is what happens when a director says, I'm going to make whatever the hell I want with zero fucks. That's an insult. Like, this is an insult. <laughs> like, yeah, this is an, in, that's an insult. Like what? So what would you prefer? Like, like what, sir, like, would you, prefer, he, he goes into a boardroom and like a bunch of story consultants start saying like, well, you know, it doesn't seem like your character has a very clear goal from the outset. And on page five, according to um, save the cat, you want to establish the theme in a subtle piece of dialogue. Yeah, I'm and seeing basically 20. the same uh, guy on the first page that I'm seeing on the last page. And you're, you're he's really not like, where, where's the arc? Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah, exactly. And, I do think that like this guy who's not a critic or anything, he's like, thinks he's like some awards blogger, which are the worst people in the world. Um, I mean, just the prose on that tweet was very hard to listen to. I have to say, (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I think that I do think that a lot of audiences have those reactions, reactions like that themselves, you know? Yeah. Like what's this movie doing? It's supposed to be doing this. It's supposed to, it's supposed to do this. And really what they, what something like that means is like, I was confused. Like really that's all they're saying, but somehow they think it's the job of the filmmaker to make sure they're not confused, which like to a certain extent. Okay. But not past a certain point. (laughs) You know what I mean? Yes. If you left the theater feeling a little confused, maybe you should watch it again. I don't know. But this goes back to the Adams family in the sense that what I like about this movie is that, yeah, it's a big family comedy, but it's kind of nice that it doesn't follow like the kind of Toy Story story structure rules that that the Toy Story has in every fucking movie. You know, <laughs> it's nice to just have a family movie that's vibes. Because the thing is, if you're talking about a movie for children, there used to be this kind of idea that like they weren't really paying attention, you know, that it didn't need to have like a really tight plot structure. It just needed to have some fun things they would watch and then they could kind of zone out during the rest of it, which is how I remember all the movies I liked as a kid. Like I remember two or three scenes of them and I don't know what the fuck happened in the rest of the movie, you know? That's all that you need. Yeah. I mean, my... My parents used to just let me watch everything because with them because it was like he's not going to pay attention. And you can't, you can't pay attention. I've seen my daughter watch TV; she can't pay attention. She can't pay attention for seven minutes, like let alone two <laughs> hours. You know, right? So the movie has to be enjoyable mainly for you, but right. now everything is enjoyable mainly for the children. And adults have like m- most adults have refused to to find their own content and instead stick with the children's content it's very sad it's very sad um, and then they get really excited because like there's a press release that in this new children's movie two same-sex people kiss for a second and oh they're like god. oh my god i gotta go it's see the most this important this movie amazing. i've ever heard yeah. of in my life yeah i mean oh I, my god it's important because superheroes are doing it <laughs> no did you know a, ricky did you know there's a sex scene in eternals this is major it's like no, it's not important. It's only important to you because you only want to watch superhero movies. 
Like just are, say that there are plenty of other movies being made that are not like this. Although, you know, less and less all the time, which yeah. is a big problem. If you're so excited about this sex scene in Eternals, like, have I got a movie for you? Have I got a filmmaker for you? His name's Paul Verhoeven. <laughs> not your fucking mostly sex no movie. Yeah. <laughs> like, <laughs> um, do you want to just, do you want to jump to favorite parts? Yeah, let's do it, brother. Let's just do it. So at the end of the podcast, we ask three questions, uh, and the first question is very simple: What was your favorite part of the movie? The most enjoyable scene, the most enjoyable sequence. What you what stuck with you? What you took with you? What you're going to hold on to in 30 years when we revisit this movie? Right, and, and I 60 am years later, 67 years old. And you are, oh, you might be dead because you'd be like over 120. I will be point. over 120. Yeah, that is pretty yeah. bad. You are in your 90s right now. <laughs> I really can't live a full life and I'm ready for death. Sweet embrace. <laughs> Just um, get it over with. Uh, I've done. How many more times do I need to drink a cup of coffee? I mean, come on. What are we doing here? Taking um, forever. <laughs> what was my favorite yeah. part? So I talked a lot about, I talked before about the chemistry between, uh, Gomez and Morticia, you know, between Raul Julia and Angelica Houston. I, that's, I really love that. I love their relationship in this movie. I love the movie's commitment to only shooting Angelica Houston in this completely crazy Morticia Adams way, where it's like she's alone in the frame and she's got like a slash of light over her eyes and it's just like her head and shoulders and she's going like, oh, <gasps> that's like every single time they show her, everything she does is like, really well done very sexy like there's a scene where morticia adams is like on the torture wheel and it's like you know maybe one of the sexiest things i've seen in my entire life and the movie acknowledges that and has gomez come in you know and this they want to fuck on the torture table of course because they want to fuck everywhere um but it, we've been talking a lot about the one-liners that this is like i'm going to attempt to relay one of them because they are all really good one one that i thought was really funny that shouldn't be but it's just all in the delivery by angelica houston she's talking to some other moms and she says something about gomez coughing up blood and the mom goes oh my god he coughs up blood and she goes huh, not like he used to yeah this is so I good love, so i love good. those one-liners i I, I I like this movie. I like. I think the writing is pretty good, and I don't know. I really enjoyed all those uh, all those dumb jokes. Yeah, one of the screenwriters, I guess, is Larry Wilson, who also worked on Beetlejuice and also like many many episodes of Tales from the Crypt, which is like pretty fun. And I think you are getting that vibe from this movie. The other big thing to say about it is like Tim Burton passed on directing it. Um, or dropped out of directing it, which is like you can feel very strongly. It's got it's got like a Danny Elfman sound alike score. A lot of it is very Tim Burton-y. Yes, they're going for a Tim Burton vibe, but I do think that Sonnenfeld, who's coming off of uh, photographing the first like four Coen Brothers movies, or maybe three, he shot. Yeah. Uh, Barton, it's not Barton Fink. Sorry, he shot Blood Simple. He shot Raising Arizona. He shot Miller's Crossing, and then I think he left for this. And Deacons shot uh, Barton Fink. But um, I, 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 I thought I've always thought that you watch a movie like this, and you watch a movie like Adam's Family Values, and you think about the way that movies are made today, and it makes Barry Sonnenfeld look like a master craftsman. <laughs> Yeah, like right. Which he definitely is not, you know. <laughs> but well, he's not a but he's not a bad filmmaker at this time. I mean, he got he he got kind of worse over the course of his career, but he's a good filmmaker. There's there's technically there's great work in this. Yeah, movie. and there's some very like creative 
edits and shot choices, yeah. you know, in a way that you wouldn't necessarily see. I mean, it's very like he's a good cinematographer who's directing his first movie. And even though it's this kid's movie, he's he's doing it. He's bringing it 100 percent to this movie. Yeah. And apparently, you know, in post or while they were filming uh, Orion, the initial film that was financing the the movie kind of went under or, you know, went close to under and they sold the rights of the movie to to Paramount and the Paramount executives got the dailies and hated it and thought it looked terrible. They didn't know how it would cut together. And they were like breathing down Rudin and Sonnenfeld's necks. And, you know, they just thought it wasn't going to work and they had no hopes for the movie and it be, ended up becoming a smash success. But I think that's always, not always, but often a sign of a good filmmaker when executives look at dailies and don't know how things are going to cut together because they're looking for the most like basic right, coverage right. to to know that they can get any editor in there to work this out. Right. Whereas Sonnenfeld is actually shooting like some pretty creative, weird stuff throughout this movie. Um, my but, favorite part. Can I say my favorite part? Is it my turn? Please Ricky. Nothing would make me happier. My favorite part is uh, the opening fencing scene between oh Dan Hedaya and Raul Julia. Dan Hedaya is their accountant, as we said, and when he shows up to meet with Raul Julia, they immediately have to fence. And they have this extremely long fencing scene that ends with Raul Julia doing backflips into his office chair and catching a cigar and the sword <laughs> as he lands. And uh, it's very well choreographed and directed, and both actors look like they're having a great time. Raul Julia is so wonderful He's in this He's so film. good. He, I mean, you know, like, I, I hate to say something like this, but he is sparkling in this movie. Yes. <laughs> yes, he is. I, I mean, I kind of feel like the movie itself sparkles a lot of the time. Like, there is just a... There's an... Apparently, it was an arduous, painful shoot. Yeah, Angelica uh, Houston, this whole thing, like, they had her head in some Sonnen kind of a weird thing to, like, make her eyes tilt up. And and also, Sonnenfeld's a neurotic, uh, like, a real neurotic. Um, and Rudin is a yeller. And so, I think it was, like, in general, like, a pretty tough shoot. But the film does not come across that way at all. No, no. And I think the the... The gateway for the rest of the movie for me was that fencing scene where it, suddenly, like everybody's in in this quirky, weird world. Yeah, right. Because you know? you're you're coming in with the like you know the square lawyer accountant guy, but even he is like not just fencing Gomez Adams, but has obviously done it a thousand times and enjoys yes. doing it. You know. Yeah, like in most movies, that character would immediately show up and be like, oh, what's this? I don't like it. But he shows up and you kind of get a sense that he might be like that. But then as soon as he gets inside, he clearly loves being there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, this is the dumb thing they always say in UCB, but it's like, it's not the first time. Like this is, you see these characters and you can imagine a relationship between them because they immediately start, just start doing something weird, but they both seem to be, know how to do it and enjoy it, you know? Yes. Um, so this movie came out, uh, you know, 30 years ago when we started this podcast, it happened to be in the year 2020, which <laughs> meant that if we did this podcast for 10 years, every movie would take place in the nineties. I've said this multiple yeah. times on this podcast before. I feel like that's going to change soon for us. <laughs> as we, uh, kind of want to start just doing movies that we want to talk about. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I we should definitely have a meeting, Ricky, and I I yeah. agree a hundred percent. 
Um, because, hey, and you know what? This is a great example. Fun movie. Totally fine. But as a 37-year-old man, there's no fucking reason in the world that I have to spend two hours watching <laughs> The Addams Family from 1991. I'm not getting paid oh for this shit. God. I did fall asleep twice trying to watch this movie. I had to watch it in three separate sittings. So for you, Chris, what was the most 90s thing about <laughs> this movie? I'm assuming we're going to have the same fucking answer. I, mean, I don't and if know. We don't, then I don't. Then I don't. Then is I don't. Is it the know. MC Hammer that is in the movie? Yes. Yes. It's that MC Hammer is in. The, interestingly enough, one of so cousin it comes up to the the ball and he's blasting MC Hammer out of his tiny car, which I actually just saw one of those cars on this collectible car website. I like they're, they're fucking dope. This is a weird ass tiny car, but um. But it's not the MC Hammer song that's from the movie. It's another MC Hammer song, which I thought was really interesting. Like, I guess the song wasn't done or something by the time. Yeah, I don't think they got the song until like pretty late. Yeah. Into the process. Yeah, but that that's pretty funny that there is just um, do what, what they want to do, say what they want to say, live how they want to live, play how they want to play. Yeah, Adam's family. Huh, huh. <laughs> I used to, I used to remember, I used to really like MC Hammer, and I liked that song a lot. And I was like MC Hammer. He was made for seven-year-olds. Yeah, yeah, it worked. What can I say? It worked. Um, Ricky, so are you going with the MC Hammer song? Yeah, of course, of course, the MC so Hammer song. I'm yeah, going with yeah. the MC Hammer song too. I can't think of because Angelica Houston is in particularly '90s. Raul Julia no. is in particularly '90s, and I don't think that in the the vibe of the movie, the vibe of the movie is kind of timeless. Yeah, mostly. I mean, maybe it's it's jokes about daytime tele, daytime talk shows. He calls in into Sally Jesse Raphael, right? And that's yeah, yeah. Which although I I am you so tired. Pretty nineties. No, it's very very nineties. I was gonna say even that is like well done. Like how many times have you seen a joke like that? But it's like it's a good joke and it's it's well executed. Right, because isn't isn't the joke that she has to ask him to stop calling in? Yeah, the here's the joke. It's an episode of Sally Jesse Raphael about like witches and like are witches are satanic witches, you know, real or is it all hype? And he calls in and she says, Mr. Adams, you have to stop calling. I don't know where they meet. (laughs) (laughs) That's funny. It's good. It's well done. (laughs) Yeah, I really I, I I like that the jokes in this movie. Um Chris, uh, it's been 30 years since the movie came out. What do you think we've grown out of? Well, I think there's kind of two things. Um, Yeah, I mean, the way that it's like a sketch movie, the way that the plot isn't necessarily properly structured or doesn't really have much of a structure at all. Um, And I think like even very soon afterwards, a movie like this would be different. Like a movie like the Beverly Hillbillies movie has a much tighter plot than this movie. (laughs) Like... It just it's like a story that goes from point A to point B and it involves the Beverly Hillbillies, you know, like but this movie is just kind of trying to capture this kind of like zany magic of the vibe of the Adams family, which I think it was not even a particularly successful TV show when it was on TV. It wasn't the Munsters was more successful and like right. the original script was more in line with the TV show and Sonnenfeld's pitch was to make it more in line with the New Yorker cartoons, which Scott Rudin. Uh, approved of and 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 liked i will say i have a an answer to this question the 90s question or not the 90s question the what we've grown out of question uh-huh. um that is you're gonna have to bear with me as i figure it oh out my God, i'm very excited i'm very excited so the adams family 1991 is 
around it's not the beginning but it's like near the beginning of tie-ins right so you would get this mc hammer song where he did a video where the adams family's in the video you would get like a mcdonald's adams family cup right you would get all these sort of branded tie-ins with the movie but the movie itself somehow didn't feel overly tied into all of those things that were created after the movie. Like the marketing department had to work with the movie they were given, like not the other way around. Now it feels like the movie works with the marketing department, right? And basically the marketing Um, department is making the movie to make it easier for them to market. Yes. There's, uh, There's something that I feel like the movie doesn't feel connected to any kind of the mar- any of the marketing that I remember of it afterwards. Yes, there is the MC Hammer song, but it barely appears in the car, and then it, it then it, then there's then the song for the movie is played over the credits. Right? You can throw any movie over the fucking credits; it yeah, doesn't yeah, matter. Yeah, right. But like the movie itself seems to still be able to exist in the world that the filmmakers wanted to create. Yes, I heard that they test screened it and they. They reshot and they, you know, did all these things to try to make a, a, a movie that would be successful, but they didn't reshoot to do any kind of like fan service. They didn't reshoot to do any kind of court like marketing service. Um, and so there's something about that that to me feels like we've grown out of where the marketing team takes the property, especially a property that's IP, right? Right. Like, yeah. Uh, this, and and still allows the filmmaker to make what they want. And then afterwards is like, okay, we can put this on a big gulps. We can put this on, on popcorn things and, you know, we can make t-shirts and stuff, but you get to still make the movie that you want to make. Right. And that's very much in the Burton school of, of superheroes where the original Batman and Batman returns, that doesn't feel like they're trying to get all of those marketing materials into the movie. Right. It just feels like, a director's take on this story and this character. And then, you know, then, right. Then the marketing department can do whatever they want to do with it, you know, but I think that that stuff was so successful. Right. I mean, now it's like the tails wagging the dog, right? Yes, exactly. And it's very sad. Um, One thing I want to say too, this is like not related to that, but like, I think the CG in this movie is good. (laughs) Like the thing, like the hand, I think it looks oh, good. Yeah. It's it like great. very well done. Like, especially for 1991, like it's kind but of is amazing. It is, is it C? I mean, I, I feel like it's like rotoscope and animation, which is also why it looks good. It's, it's a lot of it is like in camera and, and uh, I don't think a lot of it's CG. No, I don't think a lot of it is CG, but I think like some of it is. And even I just mean when I well, say CG, I mean like keying out the guy's arm. So you're just seeing the hand, but it's been like finished right. in, you know, computer graphics. Right. I think that like even in that period of time, though, like 1991, you're still dealing, you're still doing very little CG and mostly like you're doing practical effects. Right. I guess when I say CG, what I mean is the way that it's like, it's obviously a guy's hand, but they've just like keyed him out and finished it. And, uh, you know, often you are seeing the top of the hand, which is just like a little flat top, you know, which I I assume that to be computer graphics. It's like unobtrusive and it serves to just immerse you in the world just a little bit more. And I, I thought it was really well done. Didn't you also love that he like hit the thing like runs into doors sometimes? <laughs> yeah. and it's like they just really take that joke as far as it can go. 
Yeah, and he's like trying to hold on to the bumper of a car, and then he's yeah, he gets a job in the mail room. Like, it's just fun. It's just fun. Well, <laughs> we have a guest next week, Ricky. So we have to like clean up our act a little bit. We have to clean up our act next week. We have a we guest have to next bring week. It and, a little you know, bit. we haven't we haven't said it again in this episode. And maybe I should throw it up at the yeah, top. Throw it at we the should top, say please. it as many times. You as want we to can. just do a promo? Hey. Let's let's just do a promo right now, and you can edit this at the front of the show. Okay. Yeah, okay. Hey, folks! December third. Okay, now fuck? you now you start. Now start. Hey, folks, December 13th at Nighthawk Cinema Prospect Park, uh, 30 years later, is doing a live screening and conversation about the movie afterwards. We're going to record the podcast live after we screen the movie, and that movie is going to be The Last Boy Scout, starring Damon Wayans and Bruce Willis, directed by Tony Scott and written by the great Shane Black. Tony Scott, also great. Willis, Damon Wayans, (laughs) I don't know about great. They're great in this movie. I don't know if they're in... They're great in their entirety. Other two guys, great in their entirety. Uh, it's December 13th at, what time is it at, Chris? It's 9 p.m., I believe, Ricky, at Pros- Night at Hawk Prospect Park. It's going to be great. 